0: look on page 11 of your worship folder, you'll find our scripture text this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. And if you're visiting, um, congratulations, you found yourself in the middle of a year-long series on human sexuality, and this morning I'll be talking about gender dysphoria and transgender. (laughs) So you picked a great great, uh, time to visit. Um, Actually, I I do actually think you did. and so, uh, let's, let's hear God's Word uh, to us this morning from Matthew 19. <clears throat> and the Pharisees came to Jesus and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And He answered them, Have you not read that from the beginning, that He created them from the beginning, and made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciple said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those for whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, there is no problem intellectually. That is too difficult, too complicated for you not to give light and illumination by your word. And there is no brokenness that is so broken that you cannot heal. And there is no disorder that is so disordered that you cannot make right. And there is no despair that is beyond the hope of the resurrection. Wherever we find ourselves this morning in these bodies that are broken, often confused, that don't cooperate, and with hearts that flutter and themselves are schizophrenic in the voices they send to our mind, help us to know, God, that you have entered into the midst and you offer healing and resurrection life. And so meet us wherever we find this morning. In your grace and truth and your resurrection power, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Judith Butler wrote a book called Gender Trouble. Object. I don't usually bring objects into the pulpit. but <laughs> uh, And Judith Butler is uh, one of the most important theorists. I, um, she's probably called herself a queer theorist. She's one of the intellectual architects of the transgender movement. And uh, in her book, Gender Trouble, which was written back in 1990, she argues for not just that gender is socially constructed in terms of the way we express gender, male and female, but actually biological sex itself is a social construct. And she has a fairly radical um, philosophy and ideology that has been very influential in the transgender movement um, and what people are calling the gender revolution, and in the very in in the new preface to the, the edition, there's a moment that I wanted to read to you. I wanted to read um, something that she wrote. I think it's actually very insightful and helpful for us to understand as we come to this topic as a frame. And she is quite. It's a very difficult book. Um, it's it's not it's it's pure critical theory and philosophy. But she has this moment where she gets very personal and. In this forward, and she says, I grew up understanding something of the violence of gender norms. And she's older, so this has have been the 60s. I had an uncle incarcerated for an anatomically anomalous body. I think she's referring to intersex, or <clears throat> he was deprived of family and friends, living out his day in an institute in the Kansas prairies. I had gay cousins forced to leave their homes because of their sexuality, real and imagined. My own tempestuous coming out at the age of 16 and a subsequent adult landscape of lost jobs, lovers, and homes. All this subjected me to a strong and scarring condemnation, but luckily did not prevent me from pursuing pleasure and insisting on a legitimating recognition for my sexual life. It was difficult to bring this violence into view precisely because gender was taken for granted at the same time that it was violently policed. Gender was assumed either to be a natural manifestation of sex or a cultural constant that no one could hope to revise. And so my dogged efforts to denaturalize gender in this text emerges from a strong desire both to counter the morally-approved violence implied by the ideal of male and female, and to uproot the pervasive assumption that heterosexuality is the natural and presumed way that things should be. It's this last line that really caught me. What would the world have to be like for my uncle to live in the company of family, friends, extended kinship of some other kind? How must we rethink the constraining ideals of male and female such that those who fail to approximate the norm are not condemned to a death within life? That's the question I want to address this morning, and I want to take her frame because I think it's the question. What would it mean for somebody like his uncle who doesn't fit the norm to live in the company of family, friends, and extended kinship for those who don't measure up to the ideal, not to be condemned to a death within life. How do we do that as a community? What does that look like? I want to talk this morning in particular about gender dysphoria, and, or what's called gender transgender. And I, The language is complicated, and there's a lot of different terms, and I can't spend a lot of time defining those. But I do want to mention this idea of gender dysphoria, which you perhaps have heard. and Dysphoria, what is dysphoria? Dysphoria is a, is a, is a profound sense of unease, a sense of, of mismatch or incongruence. And so to be gender dysphoric is, in a sense, to have one's whole physical, sort of psychological and emotional makeup in terms of your gender identity, not to fit with your biological sex. And so it's, in other words, you... It would be as if, if if I was gender dysphoric, that I felt like I was a woman. That that was my gender identity, and yet it didn't match my biological sex as a male. That mismatch, that incongruence, is what we call gender dysphoria. And it's actually a real thing. <laughs> gender dysphoria is a real thing. I think oftentimes we think, well, these people are just really confused, but clinically speaking... It's real, as real as bipolar or clinical depression or anxiety disorders. It's something that that people experience in profound ways, and it's not simply that they're confused about their sex, or merely victims of, say, abuse or something like that. And the statistics, of course, are are hard to get, but of those who suffer from severe gender dysphoria, one in 10,000 to 13,000 men and one in 20 to 34,000 females and milder forms of gender dysphoria, 1 in 215. So it's, it's rare, and yet it is real. It is not simply something that people make up. And the transgender answer, uh, those of somebody like a Judith Butler and a lot of what you would encounter on a university campus today, the answer is that you have to actually deconstruct the categories of male and female. That, that our society's insistence in organizing... Everything around this binary of male and female is the problem, and that if we're able to sort of have, be have a more gender fluid society, then transgender people and all, and everything in between will be able to belong, and will be able to be affirmed. Now, as Christians, I I want you to see, and this is why I framed this sermon with that quote from Judith Butler. There are two questions here, and you can't. You have to separate them, but you have to see how they're related. One question is that there's a real problem. People really experience gender dysphoria. It's not simply made up. They're not simply like freaks that are, you know, crazed. And yet there's also this other movement, which is the radical deconstruction, really, of the concept of male and female. And you see that, that, that the transgender movements attempt to deal with the pain. This very, very real pain is to deconstruct sex. And, and, and there's a way in which that they understand, the transgender movement understands, that people who suffer from this understand what it means to be a broken body in this world. And, and that because of one's broken body, often you have an excluded body, that you don't belong. There's no place for you. And so this is a real issue. But the idea uh, that biological sex is ultimately irrelevant for our gender identity, as Christians we must resist this. We must resist this. And we don't resist it simply because we're invested in traditionalist understandings of gender. We resist it because actually the solution our culture has is actually much worse than the original pain. We don't make things better. And that's what I want to try to argue this morning. That, that the, the attempt to, to uh, in a variety of ways, to affirm people simply doesn't make things better. It actually can make things worse. And Jesus' response to us, I think, from this text, gives us a frame to kind of come at this very difficult issue. And it's not the traditionalist answer. It's not the conservative, yuck, that's gross answer. It's not the simple, you're confused, you just need to get set straight. But it's also not the revisionist progressive answer. In a way, it cuts through the middle. And I want to reflect this morning from this text on... Three things that Jesus, I think, teaches us about what it means to have gendered bodies. The first is the givenness of a gendered body, the brokenness of the gendered body, and then the newness of a gendered body. So, the givenness of a gendered body, the brokenness of our gendered bodies, and the newness of our gendered body. Um, first thing in having this con- uh, conversation and discussing is establishing the starting point. How do you start this conversation? How do you start any conversation about issues of sexuality? Now, our culture and our temptation is always to start with our own experience. It's to start with the reality that I'm encountering and then to sort of make moral decisions based upon my experience. But Jesus is very clear that this is not where we start. And to remind you of the text uh, that we're looking at, the Pharisees come to Jesus and their experience is one of... um, pretty loose divorce regulations. They're assuming the reality of divorce as a given that needs to be an option on the table. And so they ask him a question, not whether he, Jesus thinks divorce is right or wrong, but what, how strict do we have to be in applying you know, the, the reasons? Can a, can a man divorce his wife for any old reason? Or must there be something just like sexual immorality? And what Jesus does is he completely reframes the conversation. And he says in verse 4, Have you not read... He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What Jesus is saying is this, is that you have to, in all of the moral life, sexually, all of life, has to be interpreted in the light of God's original design and purposes. And God's original design and purposes was male and female coming together to create one flesh. And so the reality of divorce is a complete contradiction to God's original intention. We don't start with our experience, whether it's divorce, whether it's the loneliness as a single person, you're thinking, why can't I just move in with somebody or why can't I hook up? Or whether it's same-sex attraction, whether it's gender dysphoria, whether it's you're in a marriage that doesn't seem happy and you want. I mean, you don't start with your experience. We don't start with our experience because our experience has fallen and broken. We start with God's original intention. And there are two givens in particular that I want to draw out simply from this first point that Jesus teaches us. And the first one is this, gender is central to the image of God. Gender, gender identity, is central to the image of God. Jesus is quoting Genesis 1, verse 27, where, God sa- where the writer says, So God created them, male and female. In his own image, he created them. Gender is not incidental or accidental to what it means to be human. It is, it's a central aspect of our experience of original design. The idea that somehow we could live in a non-gendered body or that our gender is completely constructed and fluid is something that doesn't make sense based on simple biology, but also doesn't make sense based on what God has said the world, how it is ordered. And so this idea that somehow gender is, is sort of uh, fluid and... and, and you know, it's central to our experience, and not to recognize that is to create more chaos and more pain in the world. I, I think of this as, you know, um, I've shared this at the very beginning, this idea of that, you know, I didn't realize this until my kids taught me this, that monarch butterflies, um, they, they always fly to these couple places in New Mexico. Um, it could be all the way up here in Wisconsin, but they fly to New Mexico to mate, And and who teaches monarch butterflies to fly to New Mexico, or to Mexico, in order to to reproduce? Is it a cultural construct? Is there a kind of like, a one monarch tells another monarch, this is where you go, why don't they go somewhere else? No, because that honing instinct to mate in a very specific geographical location in Mexico is part of the DNA, the chromosomal makeup somehow, of what it means to be a monarch butterfly. And in the same way, to be created male and female, is, is not something that, that simply is culturally constructed. It's actually something deep in your DNA. It's XXYX, X, X, right? It's not simply that's something that uh, we made up. And the experience of gender dysphoria is so painful because, precisely because, gender experience as male or female is so central to what it means to be a human being. Why is it so painful? Because that is something at the core in your very DNA. And if, you're, if your mind, if your inner sense doesn't match that, that is a powerfully painful thing to go through. See, gender difference is central to our experience. And for sure, friends, there's a great deal of, of different expressions of gender, from culture to culture and across time. And that, to say this is not to say that all women do this and all men do this. Or that even within uh, male and female, that there's different expressions. And yet there is real difference. To be man, to be woman, is to inhabit the world in a different way. Because it's not just your sexual organs. I mean, a sex change operation can change sexual organs, but it can't change your chromosomes. It can't change, I mean, they try. I mean, you have diff- We have different kind of hormones that run through us that change us. They make us different kinds of people. And there is a way, and this is the mystery of marriage and the mystery of human society, that male and female, that there's, as a man, there's something inaccessible to me about women. And, and I don't mean that. And it's the same for you, that, that there's a way of thinking and feeling and being in the world that's different. And that God created male and female to come together as an expression, actually, of something deeper in God himself. The triune God, who was... Perfect inequality, but also different. And that's what you see in marriage. And that's what you see in the difference of the sexes. is an affirmation of deep diversity that coexists along perfect equality. And it's a great mystery. And it's complicated. And it shouldn't be stereotyped. And yet, it's important to who we are as human beings. But the second thing. So to have a gender body is central to what it means to be a human being. But it's also, to have a gendered body is to have a body that is a gift. It's a gift from God. Look what Jesus says. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall become one flesh. God created Adam, and he was alone, and he made Adam feel his al- aloneness. That there's no other body like my body in this world that I can connect with. Not God, not the animals. And God takes... The man puts him asleep sleep and he, he creates Eve out of him. And then what he does is he brings Eve back to him and gives Eve as a gift to Adam. And Adam becomes a gift to Eve such that the body is a gift. My body is a gift to my wife. And, your, and, and my body can be a gift to many. At, to, to be a body is to be a gift. And it's uniquely a gift in the context of marriage. But our bodies are a gift from God. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, You formed me in inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God says to Israel all the time in the prophets, I formed you in the womb. God, when he created human beings, he didn't create them in flocks and in schools. He didn't just speak them into existence. What did he do? He took Adam from the ground. He's a potter he's shaping he's forming and then he blows his own life the life of the spirit to animate this being and when he creates eve he lets adam he does open heart he does surgery and he pulls her out there's a sense of god when he creates us he creates our bodies and you have and it's handcrafted and unique and good your body is good and it is a gift from god Yes, our bodies are broken. But our bodies are not a mistake, and they're not an accident. They're a gift from the good God, and they're the basis of the kind of giving of ourselves in the world to others. And yet that reality of, that reality of brokenness is one that I think many times it's hard for us to get past. That we have this broken body, and especially gender, Gender identity or sexual identity. And Jesus understands this. And this is why I chose this text. Because uniquely here, Jesus understands that our gender identity often is broken. It doesn't match and doesn't fit the created ideal originally. Let me draw your attention back to our text. In verses 11 and 12. After the disciples disciples themselves are shocked at how strict Jesus is about divorce... And they say, basically, holy cow, if we can't get divorced, where does that leave us? And then Jesus said, oh, thank you you that you asked. Here's another option. It's the eunuch option. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. If marriage is too hard for you, gentlemen, sexually celibate singleness is also a good option. That's what Jesus is saying, and there's so much here. What you need to understand is that this is the first affirmation in human history of, of the scriptures where God affirms the goodness of the single life. You can look high and low throughout the Old Testament. You will not find a single positive reference to a man or a woman being single. To be single is to be under the curse. And the only time God tells somebody to be single is he tells Jeremiah, not, don't take a wife. And your life, Jeremiah, will be a sign of the curse for this people of Israel who has been unfaithful to me. See, singleness was always a sign of the curse in the Old Testament. It was a sign that either you had no fruitfulness, you were barren, you were vulnerable, especially as a woman, of fruitlessness. And here Jesus, what he does is he does something that's incredible. He says, there's this other option that's never been an option, and it's the idea of the eunuch. A eunuch, if you guys, some of you are wondering, what's a (laughs) eunuch? A eunuch is a person who is unable to marry because they cannot perform sexually. In other words, there's somebody who's been unnaturally cut. Um, the, the, The language of eunuch goes back to the ancient world. Kings would have uh, harems and concubines of women and they would need people to help sort of be servants and manage their households. And because the kings didn't want the men servant also sleeping with their wives, they would castrate them. And so that's where the language of the eunuch comes. Now Jesus is actually using this language and expanding it um, and using it metaphorically and literally. And I want you to draw your attention back to the categories that Jesus makes when he talks about the eunuch. He gives us three categories for the eunuch. And I want to start at the bottom. He says, there is one kind of eunuch who becomes a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And I think that Jesus himself fits this category. And it's a voluntary eunuch. In other words, it's, it's a person in which the power of God's kingdom is so powerful in their life that they don't desire marriage. Because they want to use all of their time and their gift to give to the kingdom of heaven. And I think Jesus fits in this, and Paul fits in this, and many of the early church embraced this as a model. But there's another kind of eunuch. And there's that eunuch is one who has been forced to be a eunuch. It's the one who has been forcibly castrated. And I think this is a very potent category for us to reflect on, because many times in life, people, because of the fallenness and the wickedness of this world, have been basically castrated. Maybe not literally, but because of abuse because of harm done to them by parents or family members. There's a way that they cannot enter into marriage, because they've been deeply harmed. Jesus recognizes these people as there, and they have a place in the kingdom. But then there's another kind of eunuch, and it's the eunuch that has been born that way. And we might call this intersex. In other words, there are, and it's a very, very small percentage but there are people who are born and their genitalia is ambiguous. It's not clear whether they're male and female. They're born that way. And often now, today, you have surgical operations. And it's very complicated. Jesus recognized this is so incredible, friends. Do you not see? Because Deuteronomy 23 says this. No one whose testicles have been crushed or whose male organ has been cut off may enter the assembly of the Lord. The eunuch in the ancient world was the ultimate outsider, the ultimate freak of nature. You could not enter the assembly because you're anatomically incomplete. And here what Jesus is saying is that, no, you know what? The eunuch comes in. And not only does the eunuch have a place, but he himself is a eunuch of sorts. He will build his kingdom and his family on eunuchs. The ministry of Jesus is a ministry to the body. He has a body ministry. And He's ministering to all kinds of broken bodies. He's ministering to disabled bodies, the blind, the mute, the deaf, the leper. And oftentimes, disa- disability in the ancient world, even as it is in our world, often puts you outside of normal community, right? The leper can't come close. And what Jesus does, He's healing. He's healing. And he's bringing people back into community. And he's ministering to mentally ill bodies as well, or the demon-possessed. Think of the man of the garrison. He's so out of control in his mind, he has to live outside because he's a danger to others. He's chained. He's a danger to himself. And Jesus comes, and he casts out the demon, the man sits peacefully before him. Or unclean bodies. Think of the sexually impure woman who comes to Jesus in one of the Pharisees' house and she's shedding tears. This woman was a prostitute. She's shedding tears on Jesus' feet and she's taking her hair and she's wiping his feet. A very erotic scene and this Pharisee is just floored. Do you not know this woman that is touching you? And Jesus, the message is the unclean can touch. The sexually impure can touch me. It's okay. Because I make them pure. Or the alien body The immigrant, the one that doesn't fit, nationally speaking, doesn't have the right culture, the right race. Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman who's a half-breed, and an adulterer, and on her fifth marriage. And he engages her. Or the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus engages. See, Jesus has a ministry because the brokenness of the body, friends, is a sign of our brokenness before God. And when Jesus heals the body, he's not just healing the body. It's always a sign of something deeper. He's restoring us to God. He's restoring us to community. He's restoring us to ourselves. That's the ministry of Jesus. It's a ministry to the body. And so how might we apply this to the question of gender dysphoria? The transgender answer, the answer that our culture is giving more and more is this, is that gender dysphoria is not a mental illness. And actually, if you look on WebMD, right, under gender dysphoria, they say don't... The problem with gender dysphoria is not that people actually think that they are a gender that is different from their biological sex. The problem with gender dysphoria is the distress actually of having a set, uh, an internal sense of one's gender that doesn't match your biological gender. That's the problem. But the Christian answer is different. The Christian answer says this, I think. Gender dysphoria is a disorder of the mind and the body. That is a condition of the fall. And like most mental illness issues, like depression or anxiety disorders or bipolar, they are not in and of themselves immoral or sinful. They're a condition of the fall. It's part of what it means to have a broken body, just like not everybody is born with all their limbs going the right direction, or not everybody is born with a body that's healthy. It's a condition of the fall. and in and of itself is not a sinful condition. And you guys know from a couple of weeks back I talked about all of us are sexual sinners. All of us are disordered. and one way or another, there's no such thing as anybody in here who has a fully intact sexuality and gender identity that's kind of got it sorted out. And one way or another, all of us are disordered. All of us, in a sense, are queer. But it's important for us as Christians not to let this category of disordered nature sort of be taken away, because the resistance, there's an incredible resistance um, to, to see any talk of disability or disorder as somehow demeaning to a person, the fullness of a person, or that somehow it's socially isolating. Friends, we all are disordered. We're all disabled in one way or another. You have to get this. This is why the Christian understanding is so important, and really it's the only coherent response, the only compassionate response. And we have to resist, friends, this idea that somehow what is the true you is that, that inner self that says who you are, regardless of what your body or whatever might say. Um, Chaz Bono, used to be Chastity Bono, the, the daughter of Sonny Bono and, and Cher, um, longtime time um, figure and transgender, but Chaz Bono said this about... Himself, He said, to me, gender is between your ears, not between your legs. <laughs> I've always felt male as far back as I can remember. Gender is between your ears, not your legs. See, that, that's kind of where we're going in terms of how we think about gender. That it's in here, it's not here. But the reality is this. There is no scientific basis for the idea that a person could have an innate fixed gender that is other than their biological sex. There just simply isn't. There's no scientific um, studies that can show that there's actually something that's different and off for gender dysphoric person that would, make them, that would give a kind of biological, physiological reason for treating them according to their inner sense of their sex. And that's not, again, to say that their experience of it is not painfully real. But there's an arbitrariness, friends, in how we as a culture have come to approach this. Why would we not treat Rachel Dosanel, the the woman a couple of years back, who white woman, who it was discovered was uh, head of a non-Double ACP chapter, who self-identified and in her expression as a black woman? She was white, but she was black. She identified herself as a black woman, and she presented herself that way. And this was a big scandal, and people were up in arms. Now, why... And and some of the same people who argue for a transgender understanding were very outraged by the idea that this white woman would present herself and push herself forward as a black woman. There's a kind of arbitrariness, and there's a way in which sex is deeper than race. See, what distinguishes us racially... For sure, we have different colors and perhaps different morphologies. And physiologically, perhaps we're prone to different kinds of diseases. But at the end of the day, the fact that you're black or white or Hmong or whatever doesn't change your deep nature. It's culture and history that changes you. But gender, that's physiological. It's it's, It's the deepest core of who we are. But because of the sexual revolution, and the way we've come to think about the sexual identity is that my sovereign, free self is the ultimate determining factor for how I use my body, for what I say I am. But again, another example of the arbitrariness. Why don't we then treat the young girl who's anorexic the same way that we treat the gender dysphoria? Her body is saying, you're dangerously thin. (laughs) You're close to organ malfunction, because you refuse to eat, and yet her inner self says to her, I am disgustingly fat. (laughs) Is it an act of compassion for us to say, no, you are. (laughs) It's okay to go with your inner self. And now I know the, the response will be to say this, well, it's very clear that if you don't eat, you die. And so, but it's not clear at all that how you think about yourself with gender or how you think about your sexuality is, is harmful. We can do what we want with our bodies. But if you were paying attention last week, is, is that you can't give your body sexually to another person outside of God's original design without doing harm to yourself. It is harm. And again, the studies show, I mean, if you're... <laughs> the politics around this are really hard, Right? But the New Atlantis uh, had an, uh, journal, a journal, whole, which is a, a public health uh, journal, had a summary of a, a lot of studies that looked statistically at people who have gone through gender reassignment and, and a lot of data in terms of how they're dealing with mental al- illness things. And one of the findings was this. Compared, this is their conclusion. Compared to the general population, adults who have undergone s- sex reassignment surgery continue to have higher risk of experiencing poor mental health outcomes. Sex reassignment individuals were about five times more likely to attempt suicide and 19 times more likely to die by suicide. Paul McHugh, who was Chief of, psychiatric, of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University, which was one of the very first places where they started back in the 70s doing uh, sex reassignment surgeries, and he was in the, in the middle of this, and as a psychiatrist, he was overseeing this and the mental health outcomes of people. He wrote an article for First Things a couple of years back where he basically argued and says, gives a reason why we stopped at Johns Hopkins doing sex reassignment surgeries. Because actually it wasn't making a difference. And actually it was making things worse. Friends, just like, to be clear, to be clear, the girl who's wrestling with anorexia, you don't just go say, you're not fat. Come on, look in the mirror. Just eat something. Don't be silly. You don't do that. Because it's not simply that she's confused. It's, it's a disorder. It's a disorder, a mental disorder. Just like we have physiological disorders, and it's not easy. It takes time and love and compassion. And it's the same with gender dysphoria. It's not as if you can just say, come on, snap out of it, be a man or be a woman. And I don't have time right now to go into what it means as a church for us to receive a gender dysphoric person and to allow them the place to, to process. Friends, it would make you uncomfortable, I think. I think I think. See, see, there's space in this community for, for people to sort those things out, and it's not going to always look traditional, and it might unedge us a little bit. But the reality is, is that as we have to show compassion and be there, and yet we have to understand what the root of the problem is, and, and I think Jesus keeps us on track. The root of the problem, friends, and this really covers all issues of sexuality. The root of the problem is not foremost my body. <laughs> the root of the problem is my heart. The root of the problem is always the heart. Jesus is always directing us back to the heart. And especially when he talks about sexuality, he tells the Pharisees, I mean, you think that your problem with your wife is that she, she doesn't give you what you want, she's, she's not making the dinners you like, or she's hard to deal with. That's not the problem. The problem actually is hard heartedness, it's your hard heartedness. Or when he talks, when Jesus talks about adultery, what does he do? He doesn't say, I, you know, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, anyone who lusts in his heart has already committed adultery. Because Jesus is saying, the root of all sexual disorder and sin is the heart, not the body. It's the heart. And Jesus is doing this time and again. And it doesn't matter what the issue is. He's always going back to the heart. When the, when the Pharisees are are grumbling about the disciples not washing their hands, you have this statement of Jesus that just... He says, do you not see that whatever goes into your mouth and into your stomach is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth and proceeds from the heart, this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands is not defile anyone. Friends, the root of the problem is actually not the body, the external things. The root of the problem is the heart, because it's from the heart that pollution comes. And so the idea that somehow we should trust our inner voice over our bodily reality doesn't account for the fact that the thing that is most fallen about us is our heart. It's distorted. It's a distorted voice. You can't trust your inner self. And I don't say that simply to those who struggle with sexuality, identity issues, or gender issues. I say that to all of you, all of us. Those moments in time when we have clarity about what God says, and yet everything in us is saying something different. My heart says something different. You have to distrust that voice. Because the heart is the place where pollution comes. I like what Andy Crouch says. We all know that in the depths of our hearts, we are queer We all know that. In the depths of our heart, we are queer. And what we need is we need not just new bodies, but we need new hearts. Okay. I got in trouble for cutting out a point from my last sermon last week. And I'm not going to cut this out because this is actually the best stuff. This is the last point the newness of a gendered body. Jesus comes to bring newness. The prophet Ezekiel gives us a picture of the ministry of Jesus and I will give them a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove this heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Friends, God is bringing, to be, to be a Christian is to be given a new heart. It's to be given a new heart. First Peter says that you have been born, you have a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what that means is this is that God in the power of the Holy Spirit has given you a regenerated heart. That that same power that God used to create the original creation, that same power that he will use to renovate all of creation that groans is in your heart which means you have a new identity and a new vitality, that there is a power for new creation in your heart, friends, to remake you, to remake your heart. This is the gospel, right? And yet, we know, right? There is a dysphoria we feel, a dysphoria between the reality that someday I will be fully redeemed and resurrected, and yet right now my body and my heart pull in different directions, And directions that seem like the opposite of redemption. To live between the already and the not yet is the ultimate dysphoric experience. And that is part of what it means to be a Christian. And so in many ways, the gender dysphoric person has a lot to teach us as Christians. To live in this tension where things don't seem to fit right. And yet what you have to understand, friends, is that your body, as a gift from God, your body is a calling. Your body is a calling. And I know some, I, I doubt there's nobody in this room that does not feel some sense in, of disappointment with your body, too fat, too thin, nose isn't right. <laughs> or in the case of some people, my body is broken, and it, it just doesn't work, and it will never get better, Or you have certain kind of uh, mental health issues to where you, you hear these voices and they. And they're paralyzing, and and you don't know how to deal with it. And they're crippling at times. See, nevertheless, friends, your body is a calling. It's what God has given you. And you should embrace it, and you should thank God for it, despite the fact that it's broken. The fact that our bodies are broken and don't cooperate isn't a sign that we need to escape them or exchange them for new bodies. It's a sign that our bodies need redemption. And that at the last day, Jesus Christ will resurrect... And that resurrection, and I, I, I talk about newness of body, but it's not as if Jesus, God is going to give you a brand new body, right? I'm going to take this old one, hold your soul here, and I'm going to give you a brand new body. No, no. He's going to renovate that body you have, and it's going to be so different, that it almost will be unrecognizable. And yet, it's going to be the same DNA. <laughs> same DNA. He's not going to give you an exchange body. He's going to resurrect it to a glorified body. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this hope. And this is what the hope Paul is talking about in that sacred reading, that our bodies have been subjected, the whole creation has been subjected to bondage, and we long for the redemption of our bodies and ultimately for their glorification. I think the best way to understand this, I I love this scene at the end of The Great Divorce, where C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce is a kind of... uh, it's a reflection on heaven and hell, and uh, a, a group of people from hell take a bus up to kind of the outer reach, like just around the, the border of heaven. Heaven is further up in the mountains, and they get off the bus, and they're walking around, and they're like ghosts, and they'll meet these creatures, or these, these redeemed people, saints who have been resurrected, or angels, and they're just like giants, and they're glorious, and they're shining and they're overwhelmed, and, and the world's just so real. And these people, they, they walk on the grass, and it feels like they're walking on spikes because they're so insubstantial. They're ghost like. And it's really a story about how that sort of interface of people, and all these people are trying to invite them into heaven. And all these people have various reasons and f- excuses for how they can't go further up the mountain. But there's, there's one scene at the end that's one of my favorites, and it's actually one of the few moments in the book where some. One of these these ghosts or these people on the bus actually make it, and it's a story of this man. And it says it described him as, um, you know, black and oily. And this man he had this lizard that sat on his shoulder, and it was a red little lizard, and it would whisper in his ear. And this ghost encounters this angel, and the angel is inviting him come up, come up to the mountain. And he's like, I can't, and you know, he won't let me. And I told him if he comes, he has to be quiet. Um, And and the angel says, do you want me to take care of him? Do you want me to remove him from you? And and he says, oh, sure, would you? And then the angel says, well, I'm going to have to kill him. What? (laughs) No, we can't. We didn't talk about that. And then the angel and the man, they go back and forth, back and forth. And he's like, "Ah, I don't know. And the the lizard's whispering in his ear, kind of his voice. We don't know what the lizard is. And then he's like, go, do it, do it. And he's just like, and the angel grabs the lizard. And he strangles it, breaks its back, and he throws it over on the ground. And then it says the man, this ghost, he turns, completely transformed. This glorious being. And then he looks over, and the lizard starts to transform itself, and it becomes this glorious steed like this Clydesdale. And the young man, he jumps up on top of the steed and the horse, and he rides up into the mountains. friends, that's resurrection. God will take your worst affliction, your dysphoria, your sexual orientation, your disability, that thing that formed you in so many ways, you think, how could I ever be without this thing? He will take it. He will transform it. Just like the nail scars in Jesus' hand after the resurrection aren't just signs of brokenness and shame and death, but they're glory. Friends, He will take whatever afflicts you, He will redeem it. And it will become beautiful. Our hope is not simply in our bodies, someday redeemed. Our hope, friends, your hope now, is in the broken body of Jesus. That's where your hope lay. The broken body of Jesus. And we await the redemption of our bodies. The prophet Isaiah says of Jesus, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. No beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from which men hide their faces. When Jesus hung on the cross, He hung naked, ashamed, despised, despicable. It was the ultimate shame and the ultimate brokenness. It was the ultimate dysphoric experience. Can you imagine? All His glory stripped. All the intimacy with the Father and the Spirit. Now He's alone. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians... For God, for our sake, God made him to be sin. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. that's the gospel, right? Jesus, he took the sin, he took the shame, he took the death. He is life everlasting. He is glorious. There's no more dysphoric experience in what he did. He went deeper than you ever will go. He will suffer a brokenness that you could never recover for, and yet he did. Jesus was condemned, to quote Judith Butler, he was condemned to life within, condemned to death within life, that we might not be. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may you make the broken body of Jesus our hope and help us to know that as your people, that wherever we find ourselves in this journey of life with these broken bodies, may we have hope in the resurrection and comfort that our Savior is with us in our brokenness. And even as we go to this table now, He feeds us. He feeds us with hope, with faith, and life. In His name we pray. Amen.